Hey folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're talking to Nathan Karras. How are you doing today, Nathan? Uh, good. Great. The sun is out. We won't have it for much longer today, I imagine, but um, coffee has been had. Spirits have been uplifted. Oh. Energies are glowing. <laughs> we're ready. <laughs> we're sitting in front of this mood-altering lamp. I love it. Like, how can you not be happy in this space, right? climate change i don't know oh okay yeah <laughs> when you start to think about what we've done to the planet it can bring your mood down but then we got this lamp hey the, but you know what this lamp will save the world yeah just be just like avatar she's not ready for it but she will be more on avatar later <laughs> it's warm in here is it i feel fine you a tropical person? I'm there. Yes, I am absolutely 100% a tropical person. When I was growing up, I was told that about myself, but I don't know if that was just You mean racist. you were, were you told that you were exotic? Yes, I, I was. And that also, um, my blood was more adaptive to warmer oh, climates. Oh, no. No. <laughs> yeah. No. See, I'm just <laughs> adapted to warmer climates because I grew up in them. Mm-hmm. Um, visiting the Philippines to visit family for like a month at a time, like consistently, where the humidity is like 10 times worse than it is here. Right, like 100%. <laughs> 100%, 110%. And, it, and it's like, and it's like you know, between 80 and 90 degrees every day and the sun is out. Um, and then it's just humid. Mm-hmm. Um so when you're a kid and you learn to fall asleep with nothing but just like a fan that like oscillates, look at us using big words, oscillating. <laughs> um, you get used to like heat and so like being, people are like, oh, are you ready for humidity? When I came here from California and I was like, I don't think you understand that I know humidity very well. Um, and then where I grew up in Auburn, California, mm-hmm. uh, was very like 105 degree summers, dry heat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like... I prefer the heat because it's what I'm used to and not used to this like negative five degree winter that that was where I was suffering. Yeah. It it takes some um, getting used to. What are um, a few things that folks should know about you? Um, So I really hope you all enjoy the fact that I'm a Gemini. Um, I very much resonated. I don't know if you saw that trailer for The Bachelor um. when he uh, introduced himself to one of the contestants and he was like, I'm an astrophysicist. And she was like, oh, cool, cool, that's great. Well, I'm a Gemini. And I was like, that's my community. That's that's where we resonate because fuck being an astrophysicist, you just need to be a Gemini, right? Um, and I am a queer non-binary individual. I use they, them pronouns. Um, and I'm currently a grad student at UVM in the higher education student affairs program. Um, I came all the way out here from California. Um, and I consider myself to be a unofficial, uh, sexual health educator, sexuality educator, um, explore of identities and gender and sexuality i really want to see like how far um we can go in depth in exploring these ideas of existence um and yeah i'm doing a lot of work on campus with the cutie pot community um currently organizing and planning 
NEQD Pac 2020. It's the Northeast Queer and Trans People of Color Conference for 2020. Um, so I'm doing a lot of things. Um, I'm excited for this year and this podcast. Nathan. <laughs> you are from Auburn, California. Correct. Tell us what it was like growing up in Auburn. Um, okay. So people, first of all, here's a little geography of California. Uh, people like to think that the Bay Area is Northern California. And Southern California is Southern California. LA and San Diego, that's Southern California. Um, but Northern California to me is everything that's like Sacramento and above, which Sacramento is like two hours above the Bay Area or an hour and a half. Um, and I grew up in the foothills below Tahoe and Reno. So I lived actually an hour and a half from Reno, Nevada. And was very close to the Sierra Nevadas. Um, and very much where I lived, if you like to snowboard and ski, that was a good place to exist because you could go right up the road. Um, but that also meant that Auburn was a very small town in the sense that it was, you had Sacramento as the city, and then you had Roseville as the suburbs surrounding the city. And then Auburn was like very, very urban, like, or ex-urban, beyond suburbia, you know? So my neighbors, while I lived in a like small little gated community, which was an old retirement community, all of the neighbors outside of that were farmers. Um, and my school was right across the street. So very much if you just took like a small Midwest town and transplanted it in California, that's what you had. Um, because a lot of Northern California is conservative um, above Sacramento. And so I grew up in a very large white population, conservative Christian uh, background um, where I went to school. And as someone who is mixed um, Filipinx and white, I kind of was had the experience of, you know, phenotypically I'm darker, um, not that dark. I do have light skin privilege, absolutely. Um, however, in that context of that area of Auburn, I was still considered um, and treated as a person of color within that. And so that kind of has shaped a lot of my, like, interaction with um, cutie pox spaces today um, and how I navigate that. And obviously I've had a lot of work with functioning as a mixed person, working within both white communities and um, my own communities of color. And so I was racialized and treated as a person of color, and so that was like an interesting juxtaposition to where my family is, um, my brother is completely white, and we look nothing alike, but that was also like my saving grace in a way because he um, was popular and people knew me as DK's little little brother um, at the time and didn't fuck with me or like treat me like any differently, but I definitely always existed in the state of like limbo where I could see my family as one thing, um, but people would treat me as something else. And I didn't really have this understanding or concept of race because it was very white. My mom was not someone who like had full conversations about like race and racism and like what it meant to be like a Filipinx woman or person like in this area. Um, because my family is originally from the Bay area where I would have had a lot more cultural exposure um, and so my cultural exposure growing up was that we would visit the Philippines and visit my grandma and my Lola um, and family there uh, ever since I was a baby. So I've had the privilege of being able to, you know, make that trek and not everyone gets to do that. So that's what it was like. Um, it was very homophobic. I did mm. not come out until college and a lot of um, 
middle school and high school felt like I was just surviving. And like, I remember vividly telling myself, like, you just need to get to college, you just need to get to college and get mm. out of here so that way you can explore yourself. Um, so that was like the existence of what it was like there. It was very awful. And to this day, still gives me a lot of anxiety whenever I go home mm. um, because there are definitely a lot of like Trump supporters in that area, um, very Christian and just not safe generally for you to be like out and about and expressively queer and like non-binary. So that was Auburn. And and then you um, you made your way to Vermont. Uh, any stops in between? Um, well, I did my undergrad in Santa Cruz, and that was I was oh, very thankful. The Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. Yes, uh-huh. I'm yes. familiar. Mm-hmm. 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 Have, you, have you seen the movie Us? I have. Indeed. That was a tr- that was a true story. <laughs> Who is your tethered? <laughs> Probably an earth sign. <laughs> um, someone who has their shit together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's we funny. like to think our tethered as these like horrible, like, but you're you know, the people, horrible But the reality one. is we're the horrible <laughs> ones. And the tethered are like, this bitch needs to get it together. And I'm like, you know what? You don't deserve these opportunities because. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my gosh. Santa um, Cruz, how was your time there? Santa Cruz was. <laughs> monumental in my development Hmm. in activism and social justice because um, while the university itself struggled with um, recognizing and advocating and supporting students uh, around social justice, the students themselves heavily fell into the idea of like countercultural and social justice. And so, of course, you had a lot of people who were like in it for the brownie points and the cookies and not actually like for the work. Um, And other students that were just it was just exposure for the first time and for me that's what it was um and I didn't ever feel out of place as soon as I got there and that and as a person who's always been very absorbent observant and absorbent of like information around me I you know was able to learn a lot of things by just observing and like interactions outside of the classroom with community members and have a lot of conversations about like race and class and different privileges and sexuality and gender um and understand how a lot of things were problematic. And I got all of that through a community um, obser- observation lens, which is kind of, in my mind, a good way of going about those things because you're not fully impacting people and like always asking you know, for people to educate you. Um, and I got involved there as like a sexuality, like sexual health educator, um, and became one of the first uh, started not started, but was the first intern in like the LGBTQIA plus peer education program where we went around campus and facilitated workshops and trainings for other student staff around campus on how to be more inclusive to um, LGBTQ students that they served. And it was definitely monumental in like my identity development um, as a queer individual um, and then as a non-binary individual. Um, and shaped also a lot of like my understanding of the current issues in our communities today, uh, specifically in regards to like preferences and like racism within the community and like fat phobia and like desirability politics. Um, because it's, I always consider it like you struggle so much with accepting yourself and that's one challenge. And then as soon as you do accept yourself, now you're bombarded with all the other issues that come where it's like, great, you accept yourself, but that doesn't mean everyone else does or is, you know, exclusively interested in you as well or you know if you're not considered fuckable then they don't want anything to do with you um and it's really underlying and 
growth, um, but also recognizing that there is a lot of um, growth opportunities and not a lot of people, I think, are having conversations with how people who have been out for like, you know, five plus years, but then are friends with what we would call like baby gays or people who are just coming out and discovering themselves, like the growth gaps between those two individuals and how it can be draining um, and sometimes harmful for the people who have been out who want to like help, you know, uplift and bring people in, um, but then don't have the capacity to experience your growing pains as you're figuring out like who you are and unlearning like racism and unlearning transphobia and, um, going through the motion of figuring out what is your aesthetic? Like, what is your style? Like, who do you want to be? Um, how do you want to exist like in these spaces? And so it feels because everyone's going through their own shit and everyone has like all their own trauma to deal with and, um, their own anxieties and pressures from the world that they're just trying to exist. And it's hard to like fully commit to, there isn't like one position that feels like where someone's like actively trying to be like an elder in the community and like fully trying to uplift and bring people in, in certain areas of the world. Um, and there's a huge disconnect between LGBTQ communities on campus and in the communities that the campus exists in. Right. And so that was one of my biggest issues was it was so hard to connect with off campus community members and exist in these ways. I'm able to do that a lot easier now as a grad student and work with the Pride Center and um, work with programming on campus because I'm solid in myself. But when you're still first figuring out, you know, who you are and where, where should you go? It's there's no one. I didn't have anyone there to like tell me like these are some things you should check out. Or these are things that um, are people you should connect with, which I think is really important to have for anyone who's coming out. They're coming into themselves. Most definitely. Santa Cruz. <laughs> Santa Cruz. So then what made you um, move to Vermont? What was the impetus? Um, I'm a real, what's the word, masochist? I like inflicting pain on myself. <laughs> <laughs> And I really wanted to experience winter for the first time. Um, yeah, I just thought that was a great idea. I'm going to leave sunny, sunny Santa Cruz and the beach and the ocean come to the winter. No, um, I realized, so a lot of my praxis, praxis, I'm using words, a lot of my way of existing is that I want to create sustainable um, ways of knowledge for our community specifically so that like, you know, I think I, I know what I want to do in life and I want to create resources and materials and gather knowledge for people to have easy access to, to where when you're first coming out, like you have access to that information. It's not like, so like, where do I start? Where do I begin? Um, why do I even know, need to know all this information? You know, it's not like you come out and you accept yourself and like Marsha P. Johnson comes down on a rainbow and was like, here's a pamphlet of everything you need to know, you know, you. about yourself, like sexual health education, um, anti-racist work, um, how to not be transphobic, like talking about desire and preferences and like relating all those things and then talk about, you know, why alcohol and drugs are so prominent in our community and spaces um, and just have the space to exist in those ways and like learn about those things and figure out where your community is and who your community is and like who are things people you can talk to or look to for um, ideas or support Um and representation, right, and visibility, because all of that's super important, and you have no idea where to start, or I felt like I had no idea where to start um, when I was first coming out, and so I know I want to create those kind of resources for people, because as someone who, you know, was repressing a lot and came out later, 
somewhat like later in life and not like as I came out as an adult technically. And then of course you have to go through the whole like second puberty of figuring out how to date and how to exist and like understand like how relationships work and as a queer person with other queer people. Um, so I want to create those kind of resources um, and spaces for people to explore and learn all that, like even like history, you know, in our own spaces to do all of that. Um, like, yes, it's nice to be included in like a general everyday curriculum, but I also want those spaces like just for ourselves to be able to exist and learn about those things. Um, California um, introduced LGBTQ history yes. to their curriculum recently, yes. didn't they? They did, which is a great step. Um, and I also think about it in the way that, you know, because of the AIDS epidemic, <clears throat> we're missing a lot of elders, mm-hmm. right? Um, things specifically about like ballroom culture and how there are elders and there are, you know, pillars of the community, especially if you're watching Pose right now, mm-hmm. go watch Pose. Mm-hmm. First season is on Netflix. Um, you can find the second season. The new episodes are on FX. FX. If you got yes. it, like if you, if you got <laughs> if you got the cable hookup or if you got the FX hookup, they're there. Um, We're talking about history, right? Yes, right. And talking about history and how um, a lot of a lot of our history isn't written down, and a lot of it's oral storytelling. And we lost a lot of people um, in a generation, a generation, two generations. Um, and so a lot of those stories were gone. And for the people that still exist today, like I think why it's important for us to have our own spaces to transfer that history and to share those stories and that knowledge is really important because it just feels like we're missing um, some of it and don't have access to that information. So a lot of people in certain age groups or certain areas feel may feel um, without any kind of guidance or may feel like a what I academically wrote about was being a first-generation queer and that like I didn't have anyone to like guide me or show me I didn't have anyone in my family like paving the way um, while they were alive um, for me to like learn from and figure out because I did have an uncle and he was gay, but he died in 91 before I was born because of AIDS. Right. And so like an example of that, and like if he was alive, right, how different would my life have been, you know? And so thinking about how a lot of those people don't exist and how a lot of people after that generation can still exist in a state of fear or, you know, anxiety about expressing themselves fully. And so you just kind of have this continual cycle of people figuring out every single time on their own. And I want to stop that cycle and create a sustainable way where it's like when you come out or you come into this community, like we have you. And that's not saying that that does not exist today. Um, I just want to make it more accessible to people all across um, this quote unquote country would you like to see a queer smithsonian i want to see a queer like everything like i want to see a queer smithsonian i want to see a queer university um and i want to see a queer like medical center that focuses solely on like the development of um not medicine just for queer people but like (laughs) that doesn't make any sense but um a space where like queer people can go and seek out um, medical care without fear of being judged for existing in that space. Because a lot of, you know, our anxiety comes from just being hyper visible and being public and how that can be dangerous for a lot of people. And I want to be able to have spaces where we don't have to be hyper visible and just be able to do everyday things without it being harmful to our existences. So do you feel like you're able to do that work here in Vermont? 
I don't know. I think yes. And I think that's, I'm in, I'm in a higher education program, right? And so I thought that I kind of had this revelation at the beginning of the summer where um, I was like, do I want to finish this program? Because after working in higher education, um, the reason why I wanted to go into higher education was because I saw how important it was to have mentors and to have people that supported you in academics because that was the only way I graduated from my undergrad and succeeded in my undergrad in my last year was because I had that cutie pock mentorship and queer mentorship that like supported me and pushed me through and I wanted to continue that cycle of support for students um and then I was also had this moment of like yes and I don't know if higher education is the arena like I want to continue to support and mentor people um coming into themselves and I don't know if higher education is the arena that I want to do that in because higher education is very bureaucratical and there's a lot very limited, as you were, Reggie was just signaling with his hands. Um, <laughs> I made a small motion because that's what it looked like. Um, and it can be, you know, even more, like there's a lot more resistance to like implementing things that are really necessary because higher education institutions already don't function from like a harm reduction model as a whole. And they like to think that one size fits all for how they um, support students um, and that's just not the case because they don't take into account people's identities and personal experiences and backgrounds. And it has to be very quantitative. And like, you need the support of numbers and evidence that th- these things are needed versus like personal experiences and, you know, why they take them seriously. And so I just don't, I'm going to finish this degree because higher education is higher education. It's a degree, it's a master's, right? And it's free tuition. It's another reason why I came free tuition. Um, and so I just don't know if higher education is the arena that I want to do that work in. And I can see myself like, I want to be like Erica Hart. We all know love sort of, um, speak. Yes. Or write, write And provide and spaces, yeah. um, that allow people to exist in those ways and mm. have those conversations. Um, because a lot of, you know, currently like our existence is we get to create new language for the ways in which that we exist and express ourselves. Um, and each generation kind of continues to create more space for people to create more language and opportunities to define those things. Um, and I want to be a part of that. And I want to continue to, I want to record, I want to make sure our history is passed down um, and that someone is recording the current like process in ways and that like everyone knows you know, about things people don't know about our history or about you know the ways that we exist because there's still like people my age and younger who have anxiety about getting HIV and AIDS and are widely like miseducated about how you can contract it and you know it's 2019 and we're still suffering from like from that um, from the AIDS epidemic and still suffering you know I think yesterday the Justice Department filed to the Supreme Court to try and, or filed something to the Supreme Court to get the Supreme Court to uphold that it is okay to fire um, a worker based on their quote unquote sex, um, if they're transgender, um, or even I think LGBTQ in general, um, that it's okay for them to be fired based off of that alone, right? And that's happening now in 2019. And so. I've always been ready to fight or revolutionize things, but how how do we continue to, like, I don't want us to just exist in a state of survival. I want us to exist in a way that we're thriving, right, and not have to worry about continual pushback from the government and from places of power 
that want to infringe upon us just existing. Well, it sounds like you want to get involved in law or politics. No, that- I just want to tear it all down and start over. <laughs> or, you know, tear it all down and give the land back to the people that were here first. I would call that involved. Yeah, I call that involved. You're there. You're right there doing it. Tell us uh, a bit more about Cutie Pock programming at UVM. I know you're instrumental in um, what the campus is doing to give platforms to POC uh, and also Cutie Pock folks. So can you tell us more about what you do there in regards to that? Yeah. Um, so... UVM is a PWI, which we which stands for a predominantly white institution. Um, last year, the student population was 89% white out of 11,000 students, including grad students. And that also means that the faculty and administration um, is predominantly white, which makes it really difficult for POC issues alone to be recognized and heard um, and supported by the administration in ways that are meaningful and sustainable and not just like, you know, here's the, my diversity cookie for, you know, giving some money to these, to these programs to support students of color. Um, and of course, cutie pock, queer and trans people of color are even smaller than that. Um, so it's not like the population is huge. However, there is a huge need for, um, advocacy and support for that because, you know, communities of color can still be homophobic and transphobic. Um, and of course, white queers can still be racist. Um, so there's that intersection on both sides where it can be difficult to get cutie pox students to be able to, they, they may feel like they have to choose one or the other, their race or their sexuality when they get to UVM because cutie pox isn't as solidified, um, as it could be or, um, as it should be. And within the PRISM Center, the LGBTQ Resource Center on campus, it's great. It exists. Um, however, there isn't like a full like cutie pock support group or functioning within siloed within that center. And we mean siloed that it exists solely within that um, on its own and is supported and financed and are funded um, and is doing work around campus. And so cutie pock as a as a name as a form of programming came, arose from students advocating for that and creating that own space for themselves. Because there's a QSU on campus, but that's predominantly white, and the you don't... QSU being... The Queer Student Union mm-hmm. um, being predominantly white and not um, feeling welcoming to students of color um, or providing, you know, solid programming opportunities that cater specifically to um, students of color and their needs. Um, so what I do... Um, I got involved with the programming last year when I got here with Rachel Green, um, my twin. Shout out, Rachel. Shout out, Rachel, who is now in Arizona living their best life. Go off. Um, they picked up, when they got here, they picked up the Cutie Pop programming as one of the lead organizers, you could say, for it. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's always been student-led. It was started at a, it was always started by students. And what would happen is if there weren't students to pick up and like continue working within it, it would fall off because there wasn't right. like a direct staff member that was responsible for keeping it going and providing like cutie pox spaces on campus. Um, so it was very much student led and currently 
Um, it's evolved to the degree where we have solid staff support from both MCSC and the PRISM Center um, focused on creating QDPOC spaces. I know in the past year we introduced siblinghood, which um, at UVM there's brotherhood and sisterhood, which are um, spaces of color for um, gendered spaces of color, inclusive gendered spaces of color. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, to come together in community and siblinghood was a new thing that we introduced um, that kind of focuses more on being completely gender inclusive um, and for like more so for like cutie pock um, communities. I'm in a great turnout um, and we cooked food from, I made Filipino food for at one time, Kunal, who um, worked at the Prism Center and graduated a couple of years ago, made uh, their food for it where they made some curry and it was super delicious um katarina love katarina works at the women's center made some pernil and it was just so good and it was so um the students are happy to have something that was seasoned and flavorful and bland vermont um and so we last year this year also had a cutie retreat um for students and so the main focus has just been within this programming to providing spaces for QDPOC students to gather in community and exist together and explore themselves and focus on, you know, moving from just a surviving in white-ass Vermont to thriving in white-ass Vermont. What does that look like and how can we continue to support each other in making that happen? Um, So my goal before I leave is exciting uh, because I've been working, I was working with it all last year and I'm I'm now one of the lead like people for it um this year is the second year in my program and what I want to do before I leave is make sure that it's like gonna be okay and still going after I leave in the sense that it has its own form of funding and it's a recognized um programming opportunity within MC uh the Mosaic Center for Students of Color and the PRISM Center and making sure that there are staff members who are um making sure that it keeps going um, cause one of the main issues with it is when students get to UVM, they don't realize that it exists. And so students of color will usually focus on working in groups that pertain to their racial identity, um, like Alianza, um, Latinx, um, and Wokoko, Women of Color Coalition, and, um, the Black Student Union and like QSO. So people often focus on one monolithic identity, um, before realizing that QDPOC exists and then they're already tied into QDPOC or into that group before QDPOC. And so then QDPOC has always had low attendance because students are always so busy. So the goal is to remove that pressure so that way it'll always exist and students can like see it when they get here if that's something that they want to be involved in. Tell us more about the Northeast QDPOC conference. Yeah, so it was a conference that actually originated at UVM. The first one was six years ago um, at UVM, and it's transferred, not transferred, it's moved around um, universities within the Northeast area, so kind of up to Maine and down to, I think, Philadelphia is the lowest it went, or Maryland. Um, Still in the relative Northeast. Yes, Um, and it's a conference for queer and trans people of color and it's just like any conference where there would be a keynote there are um, workshops or presentations or presenters um, and the main focus is just that it's a gathering space for um, QDPOC individuals Um, there wasn't one in 2019 because 
the each year the current committee is responsible for finding next year's committee and they open the bid process a little late in the year um and they didn't get anyone that wanted to host it because there wasn't enough time to fully effectively plan a conference so there wasn't one in 2019 and but there will be one in 2020 and i and a few others wrote the bid um to host any cutie pock at uvm and it was accepted so we are now hosting it at UVM. It is the official date is March, the weekend of March twentieth, twenty first, and our goal for it is to be accessible to, and students come will come from all over the Northeast to attend the conference, right? Um, and we don't want it to be just exclusive to students because cutie pox spaces are already minimal as it is, and so we want it to be as accessible as possible. And hope I believe the hope is that. Community members will be able to come. Community members will want to present at it um, and host workshops. Um, we want to collaborate with the Pride Center and like outright to create events um, and fundraising tactics for it. Um, I believe Reggie is helping us on the committee um, with planning the conference. Um, so that's kind of like the hope with it and just kind of creating the space and allowing people to gather um, because spaces like it are so necessary and important. Nathan, I love your personal style. Could you name for us a few of your style icons? I don't have any. Oh. Um, I don't have any. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say Gwyneth Paltrow. No. No. I don't think so. Oh, I'm off. I'm yes. way off. Yeah, that's, oh, that's correct. Um, I, it's, I'm terrible with names, A, so I don't, like, there isn't, like, <laughs> Bill, I, will, I will take that back. <laughs> Billy Porter is absolutely becoming Ooh. a style icon. Yeah. Um, if I ever am involved in a marriage ceremony, quote, unquote, <laughs> um, or something like that, I absolutely would be wearing a half tux, half dress yes. combination outfit um i i don't know it's more in my mind like i'll see pieces of an outfit and be like that works that works that works and then i'll like either like get one piece of it and like i need to arrange the rest of the outfit so if i have a pair of shoes or heels or boots and i'm like what is gonna go well with the rest or if i have like yeah it's just if one piece and then i just kind of imagine it in that way I've been told I'm very creative in um the sense that like my creativity shows up in the way that I express myself um I wish I could express myself more femme all the time uh but my anxiety gets too much sometimes and so I just do my best to be as decorated in quote-unquote masculine clothing um it's just safer in society exactly yeah and it's fine because my group of friends were all femmes in a way and tend to, can take turns and one of us dressing masculine and the other can dress femininely and we look out for each other in that way of who is more masculine is more on like bodyguard duty in a way and like ready to fight people if like they have shit to say. Or, okay. Um, shit to say with their eyes. Right. And they do. And they do. Mm. What is your favorite ASMR personality? Who who is it? 
Hard to pick just one. I don't watch ASMR, but I do love the edited videos of someone doing ASMR over like a fight scene. Oh. Like it was like a Real Housewives or, <laughs> um, and they're like fighting over the table, but it's all in ASMR. <laughs> I really appreciated that. Also, I'm forgetting her name. Um, but she's an ASMR artist. And I just remember there was one specific video where she was eating a cabbage. Oh, yes. <laughs> Is that the Chew? I think so. The Chew. Legendary. Um, I also appreciate mukbangs, mukbangs. Okay, um, okay. Where people just eat, get a whole t- bunch yes, of, a whole bunch of food, and yeah. eat and like talk, and it's messy and it's fun to watch. That's definitely ASMR. Um, but again, I'm horrible with names. I wouldn't be able to give you like the specifics. Just that's your preferred genre. The eating. No, my preferred genre is the edited. Okay, right, right, right. Okay, I'm going to have to look into this. Thank you for the hot tips. I'm always on the lookout for um, fresh material. Twitter is a great place to find interesting content. Oh, absolutely. What would we do without it? It's a great question. So, this is a bit of a selfish question. Um, only because I'm, I want to talk about a program that I really like a lot, and I know that you don't watch, um, <laughs> but I want to talk about it anyway, real quick. Um, so I love this show um, on Netflix called Mindhunter. And <laughs> calm down, I'm going to need you to chill. I'm actually going to need you to chill out real quick. So Mindhunter, for those who don't know, is about. Um, I might have spoken about it on the program before. Um, so it's about. It's like fictionalized reality. Um, is that historical fiction? Historical fiction. Right? Yeah. So about the first um, FBI agents who started studying um, serial killers and first came up with that term even. Um, so it's a bit of like reality, like real people that we know are like famous serial killers. Um, but these folks who are fictionalized characters are meeting with them and analyzing them basically um, in the 70s. So so um, it's a great program. If you haven't seen it, check it out. There's a new season that just premiered. Um, Nathan, have you ever worried that you would become a serial killer? Slash. Slash. Um, Hashling slasher. I mean, yeah, that was like a... Did I make it too obvious? Are, are the walls oozing green ooze? I'm confused. What? Is that what's happening right now? Was that a Ghostbusters reference? Oh, my God. So did <laughs> First of all, it was a SpongeBob reference. Oh, Thank you. Uh, wait, Hash slinging slasher. You can just edit it out. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah we are. We're going to, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> On this program, we edit out all SpongeBob references for copyright oh, reasons. Do we? Oh, we do. Okay. Who lives in a pineapple under, under the sea? Send me that send me that unedited version. So the question is, have you ever worried that you would become a serial killer? Um slash um be somehow caught up with one? Like maybe meet one on Grinder or something. The only way at this point that I could see myself being a serial killer 
um, is just my view of, and I don't know how much you want this to be on there, um, of how much to tolerate people who are racist and like white supremacists specifically, um, that are Nazis, like people like to think, oh, they just need to be educated and they don't know any better. Some people that's absolutely true. And a lot of the times they do know better and they don't care. They just are that way. And at this point in the timeline of, you know, racial activity and civil rights, and at this point, if you're still, Mm. you know, white supremacist in those ways and enforcing those things, I'm just kind of like, you could just die. (laughs) Like, you can just, you can just go. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to become a serial killer, it might be that where I, like, hunt down, like, white supremacists specifically and target them. Like, I want to be, like, that one lady who, oh, my God, she just passed away. She was 92, and she lived in Germany, and she was one of the women who would seduce Nazis and then murder them. Mm -hmm. Like, that that would be the kind of serial killer I would be. called the resistance. Yes. Yeah. So, and if I ever did get involved with one, um... I feel like that would be... Do you feel like you ever had a close call? <sighs> you don't have to say his name. Um, but... This went to a dark place. No, <laughs> I just don't know <laughs> how much I want to expose myself um, on this podcast. Uh-oh. Um... I'll just, the quick story real quick. I went to go hook up with someone and I'm very, very open about like sexuality and like, you know, things and we could have a whole conversation about like interests and kinks and fetishes, all those things. Um, Deuce. And I went to go hook up with a furry Uh and Santa Cruz and they lived in the mountains. The mountains of Santa Cruz. There are Santa Cruz mountains, yes. The notorious... We know what goes on up there. Actually, yes. There's a bunch of um, meth heads, and Santa Cruz in the 70s had the highest murder rate. It was the murder capital of California in the 70s. FYI. Um, It was a great place. And I did not know what this man looked like, and I drove up to his house in the mountains, and I didn't tell anyone where I was going, and I didn't have service when I got up there, and I didn't know what this man looked like. Um, but I was very calm about it, but as soon as I got there, I realized when I didn't have service, I was like, hmm, well, if I die by furry, then I die by furry, and that's just gonna be, I'm just, that's just gonna be the reality. And that's your tombstone. Just, uh, my tombstone, death by furry. Like, imagine, I was like, at least I went out in a fun way, to be honest. Oh, fun way. Jeez, this took a grim turn up the mountain. So what happened? Oh, it was great. Oh, it was great. Okay, it was good. a good time. Oh, happy ending. Okay, I love that. Great. So, but you were you were kind of that was that was the only time that I was like <laughs> you were. Well, that gosh. and the time I also hooked up with a guy who took me to his storage shed oh. because he had a whole like bed set up. Sure, because he had roommates. Now, but I was just like, so that was his like bungalow. His, yes, like, yes, cabana. Yeah, like you know, okay, mm-hmm. guest house, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? No, I mean, who doesn't have a storage? You know, to have sex yeah. in. Yeah, I know. Nathan. can edit all of that out. It's fine. I'm keeping all of that. <laughs> Every single piece. Nathan, what does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you? Scattered. Um, I think... 
that they're... A, I think that I'm not a local, um, and I observe more of it than I get to participate in it because of existing fully on campus a lot of the time. Like, I'm more immersed into that culture, black and brown queer culture. Um, And so... I haven't met a lot of cutie pock people outside of UVM um, and been able to like really like see spaces that are dedicated just to, you know, being cutie pock and the people that I have seen that kind of come from all over. Um, like we just went river tubing and there are people from Rutland that I'd never met before that were, you know, black queer folks and, you know, elders in a sense. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, this is, you know, a great, never thought that I'd have the opportunity to meet people in that way. So thanks, Glam. Um, <laughs> Shout out to Glam. And I think it's hard to... I think Vermont is an interesting state to be POC, um, let alone Cutie Park, because of the white supremacy that exists and how white the state is itself. Uh, we tend to stick out like sore thumbs, but it's hard to like gather all of us into one place. I'm really lucky to have um, a family um, that is, like, off-campus and majority, like, cutie pock people, um, including my partner. <laughs> Shout out them. My joy friend. Um, <laughs> and so it's, like, it's, it's, it's few, it feels like it's few and far between because, you know, drag race showings, you'll have a bunch of, like, gays show up. And I'm like, I've never seen any of these people before in my life. Like, where are they coming from for drag race showings? Because mm-hmm. they don't come to anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's cutie pock folks coming to those things. And I know that we exist, you know, around, but, like, where are we gathering? Um, so, I, would know, I know we exist. I, I would love to see more cutie pock specific spaces. Um where we can gather. And then I think you could ask me that question again after we've had that opportunity and I could be able to tell you a little bit more. When do you feel most brown and out? Um... I think when I am cooking for other people and am existing, um, expressing femme in the world and am very obviously queer. Um, and I think that it's a interesting question to ask, to answer as a mixed person who is like mixed with white and can be, you know, white assumed sometimes. Um, that it's interesting to be mindful and acknowledge that you exist in both spaces. Right. And picking the time and place when it's like you are more of the frontline defense, I guess, for friends who are more Brown um, and more expressive than you are in that moment and being okay with that. Um, Because it doesn't diminish my own identities. Uh, However, I recognize that I do hold more privilege in that moment. Right. And so I think for me, it's there are multiple situations and factors where it's like I think I always feel brown and out 
However, there are situations where I'm not recognized as always being brown and out. And A, I am okay with that because that's recognizing privilege in that way and recognizing power in that way. Um, and then B, there are times when I'm like not surrounded by maybe a lot of those people and I'm always seen as brown and out anyway. Um, and so for me, I definitely function in the way that I like to always be brown and out, but recognize when I walk into a room, for if I walk into a room of cutie park people and I'm, you know, the most light-skinned person in the room, I'm, I know I have a right to be in that space. However, I'm not going to take up space, you know, if we're talking about colorism, um, saying that I have this experience, the same weight of the issue that um, other folks may experience in that space. So I guess I feel brown and out all the time <laughs> just within like culture and the way I express myself but I'm very aware and like understanding that like I will not always be perceived as brown and out um and that's okay Nathan I want to thank you so much for speaking with us today it's been an absolute delight you are a, a national treasure oh. Is Nicholas Cage going to come steal me? I can. Let's <laughs> be that national treasure. Do you want him to? No, that'd be weird. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Reginald. Of course. <laughs>